into. So last week, uh, we started a new sermon series called The Bible, A Unified Story Leading to Jesus. And um, I really, really encourage you, if you weren't here last week, to go onto our YouTube page or onto our, uh, any audio uh, podcast. If you listen to podcasting, search for Mosaic Church of Grand Rapids and check out that sermon. Because uh, it was an introduction to this idea of the Bible uh, that the, the Bible, I love the Bible. And I've been reading the Bible pretty much my whole life. I went to seminary to study the Bible. And the Bible is a beautiful, beautiful book. But it also can be maddening. And there's, there's, a, there's a lot of layers to the Bible. And if you don't know how to read the Bible, uh, you, it can be really confusing and you can easily get off in another direction. So this series is meant to help us learn how to read the Bible. And, and one thing that, it, that we're going to talk about is how the whole Bible leads to Jesus. If you don't know this, uh, particularly reading the Old Testament, can be, can be confusing and sometimes even disturbing. Now when you pick up a Bible, it looks like a book. It looks like a book you'd, you'd read, uh, you know, a novel. You start in page one and you read until you get to the end. That's not what the Bible is. The Bible is actually 66 books and we've bound it together. It's, like, it's more of like a library than it is a single book. And so the Bible is divided into two main sections. We have the Old Testament, which is everything leading up to Jesus. And we have the New Testament, which is Jesus and beyond. And so this is really two different parts of the library. And within the library, there's different shelves. And on these different shelves of the library are all the genres within the Bible. And you don't read them all the same. And so some of this I'm happy to meet with you during the week if you want to dive deeper and, and talk more and even ask some of your tough questions about where the Bible doesn't make sense. I would love for this series to cultivate those types of conversations. But there's two things uh, two pieces of the Bible that I hope we can get from this series. One, uh, there's two different main covenants in the Bible. There's this Old Covenant in the Old Testament, and it really affects the way we're to read the Old Testament. And there's a new covenant with Jesus, and that's the covenant that we are under. So we're going to do some, ser some sermons about that in the next few weeks. And the second one is I want you to get a feel for the genres of the Bible. Now, here's this amazing visual that I, that I showed you last week. It is you can tell a high-quality um, graphic designer put this together, and it's very easy to read and easy to follow. I made that. And it's a joke because it's not easy to read, and it's ugly. Um, but the picture of Kyle makes it, makes it amazing. So uh, this is a timeline that I made, and it starts with creation, which is the first movement in the Bible. And uh, we talked about that last week, and, and creation, and then sin in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It's super, super important. But what I want you to see in this timeline and why it's there, uh, a couple things. I want you to see that this is our story. So here you have Kyle eating ribs at a mosaic cookout, and that is us today. We're actually part of the story of the Bible. Uh, the story of the Bible's not over. It's not like it was the end, and, and that's it. Uh, we're actually in the middle of it. We literally are living in the middle of the story uh, of the Bible. And we have we, uh, Jesus' second coming. He's coming back, and we're waiting for that. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today uh, as well. But today, today's sermon is about Abraham, and it's about what would be called the second movement in the book of Genesis. So uh, if you look at your Bible, there's chapter numbers, and there's verse numbers, and we divide the Bible that way. That's not how the authors wrote the Bible. Uh, the Bible, the Old Testament, particularly the Hebrew Bible, it was written in movements. 
Like literally, you have to understand, there was no such thing as this throughout the Old Testament or the New. They had scrolls. There was no Zondervan printing Bibles back in, you know, Moses' day. Uh, or, or at any time in the Old Testament. They had scrolls, and in, even in the New Testament, they would go to synagogues, and one synagogue wouldn't have had all the scrolls because these scrolls were very, very expensive and very, very valuable, and they would be shared amongst different synagogues and swapped out. And so you would grab the scroll of Genesis, maybe, and there's different movements in the scroll where the authors and the curators of Genesis actually intentionally ended this movement, so the Tower of Babel ended a movement in Genesis, and then they picked up another movement, and it's Abraham, and that's where we're going to pick up today, the second movement, uh, the second movement in, in the book of Genesis. Now, first of all, I want to show you this scripture uh, verse from last week. Again, really important sermon last week, uh, and, and this was in Genesis 3.15. So this is back in the first movement. Uh, this is talking, this is the curse that comes on the earth because of our sin, because of our, our rebellion. And God here is talking to the serpent, who we talked about last week as Satan. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And so last week's sermon was talking about how this is talking about Jesus. We see very similar language in Romans 16, which is way at the other end of the timeline. So we have on our timeline at the beginning Genesis 3, at the very end, the, the part about Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the church, that's where we find this verse from Romans saying, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. What I want to point out today is this word offspring. I want to show you this word in the book of Genesis called offspring and how the whole story of the Bible, especially the Old Testament and especially Genesis, is about offspring. Now, don't go to sleep on me. I promise you that this will be very, very relatable uh, to your life and to my life. But that's why I've highlighted that verse in yellow, or that word in yellow, and we're going to be spending some time with that word uh, this morning. But this timeline is meant to help us see that God's plan is slow and long, okay? It's slow and it is long, we open a Bible, and, and we can just turn page to page to page and read story after story after story, and then act like it all happened just like that. And then we wonder, hey, God, where are you? Why aren't you doing this here today? In reality, this happened over thousands and thousands of years, and frankly, it is still happening. So I'm about to jump to Second Peter which is way to, in the church part of the timeline. And they were actually where we are. They're in this church part they're where Kyle is eating his ribs. This is where the church was in Second Peter. And they're waiting for Jesus to come back. They're waiting. Don't you feel that way sometimes too? We believe Jesus is coming back. That can be hard to believe sometimes. Like that doesn't seem real. That doesn't seem real. Because we just get up every day, go to work or school or whatever. Like, is he really coming back? Is this just a made-up story? Is he really coming back? I'm kind of getting bored. I'm kind of wondering if God is really going to do this thing. But picture yourself in the first century. What's crazy is they were asking those same questions, but like, <laughs> Jesus just came. I mean, he just came. He just died on the cross and rose from the dead. I'm thinking, aren't you a little greedy? Like, you already got to be a part of the biggest movement of redemptive history, and you want to be a part of the second one, too? But that's, that's how they were feeling. And some of that is because as a nation of Israel, the Jews, 
they were still captive. They were in the Roman Empire. They're still waiting for their ultimate freedom, their ultimate answer to their prayers. And so what I want to ask you before we jump to that text is, what are you still waiting for? What freedom are you still waiting for? What ultimate answer to your prayers are you still waiting for? What are you waiting for God to fix? This is where they were. They were waiting for God to fix what uh, their nation. They were waiting for God to fix their lives, to fix the world. And I think if we put ourselves in their shoes, we can relate. Because that's when I begin to doubt. I begin to doubt when I want something from God, and I'm hurting and I'm in pain, and it feels like God is silent. And this is where they were. This is where they were. So, uh, 2 Peter 3, 5 through 9. The author of 2 Peter is really interesting because he goes all the way back to the beginning of the timeline. And he says, but they deliberately forgot that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. He's talking about Noah there, Noah's Ark, the flood. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. He's looking forward into the future for Jesus' second coming and this, the, the, this judgment. Uh, verse 8, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And he he throws that as some in there. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. You could substitute as Noah Philippiac is, is uh, understands slowness. Because I think God is slow, okay? I think he's slow. And God's very specifically in this verse is saying, I'm not slow. It's just our definitions of slow are different. You, you have a one perspective on life. And it makes sense, right? I'm going to live, you know, however many years I'm going to live. Maybe 70, maybe 80, maybe 90, maybe only 40. I have no idea. But my lifetime sure feels like the full thing. I don't get to experience this whole timeline that God experiences. That is God's plan. And the other part about this passage that I really like is he says he's not slow in keeping his promise. Underlined. It's actually singular there, not plural. Uh, Keeping his promise. What was his promise? And what we do with God is we hold him to promises that he never made. Okay, that's really important. We hold God to promises that he never made. I don't even have time to get into that, because I'm already way past how long my intro should be. (laughs) But we hold God to promises he never made. God is faithful to keeping his promises, the ones that he made, the ones that he made. And we're gonna come back to that uh, in this series. All right, so this timeline is meant to show us slowness. There's actually thousands of years happening between Genesis 3 and Jesus, between Abraham, who we're going to touch on today, and between Kyle enjoying ribs at a cookout. Thousands of years that happened. And this is a pattern throughout Scripture. It took 25 years in the Abraham story. Abraham promised, uh, God promised Abraham and Sarah that they'd have a son. Well, the problem was Abraham was 75 years old, not usually the age you're, you're promised a son. Then he had to wait 25 years for that promise to actually happen. Anyone here want to wait 25 years for someone to fulfill a promise? 
Uh, the, the Hebrew slaves we talked about last week were in slavery in Egypt for, you remember how many years? 400. 400 years. That's how long the slavery lasted in Egypt before God freed them. Then they were in the wilderness for 40 years. And then when they were exiled in Babylon, it was for 70 years. Jeremiah 29.11 is a very popular verse uh, about God's plans for you. To prosper you, give you hope in the future. But verse 10 tells us that first you're going to be in exile for 70 years. You're going to be in exile for 70 years, and after 70 years, then I've got plans to prosper you and give you hope in the future. It's crazy. 70 years. We have no concept of the, the, the length, the length uh, of God's uh, plan, the length of his plan. Okay, so here's a couple questions that we're going to talk about in our groups. Um, number one, how has our culture conditioned us to want immediate results? And what happens when we don't get them? <laughs> okay, and then number two, how does it make you feel that God's plan of redemption, which means to fix everything, is longer than your lifetime? So take five minutes, and then I'll be back. All right, everybody, if you can wrap up your discussion and turn your chairs and attention back this direction. All right, next I'm going to, uh, so I mentioned last week again in the intro, uh, this sermon title is taken from the Bible Project. I encourage you to check out the Bible Project's podcast, website, app, super, super helpful in learning how to read the Bible. Uh, we're about to watch one of their videos. Last week we just showed like a two-minute clip of a video. This week I'm gonna show you a whole six-minute video, uh, which seems a little long for a sermon, but it's really good. And the reason I wanna show the whole thing is because the focus of the video is on blessing, and we're looking today at how God gave Abraham this blessing in Genesis 12, but this video beautifully shows God's blessing in creation, which we talked about last week, to Abraham, then to Moses and the Old Covenant, and then what happened, uh, all the good and the bad that happened between, and then it ends in Jesus. And that's why I want to show you this whole video, so that as we look at this uh, blessing of Abraham, we see this isn't just something that happened way in the past, but this is something very much a part of our story. So uh, sit back, and again, the Bible Project offers these videos really about every portion of Scripture in the Bible. It's amazing. Highly recommend them. And uh, so let's watch this, and then I'll jump back in to uh, the specific promise given to Abraham uh, afterwards. The story of the Bible begins with God bringing life out of darkness, ordering our beautiful world, and then blessing all of its creatures. Hold on, blessing. That's one of those funny religious words. Yeah, right. People say a blessing over their meal or after they sneeze. Or just a general way to say that things are going well for me. But in the Bible, a blessing is more specific. The first blessing in the Bible is when God creates animals, and he blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the land. Ah, so God's blessing is about flourishing and multiplication of life. Right, it's when God shares his life-producing ability with others. Next, God gives humans an additional blessing that sets them apart from the animals. Not only are we one of God's creatures that can generate new life, we've also been appointed as God's representative image to rule and oversee this whole flourishing world on God's behalf. So part of our blessing is to take care of God's blessing for all creation. And God wants us to rule while trusting in his abundance, to eat from the tree of blessing, that is, the tree of God's own eternal life. 
Now there is another tree to eat from. Yes, and it represents this decision to try and seize abundance and life on our own terms by our own wisdom. The humans encounter a deceptive creature who tricks them into eating from this other tree, thinking it's a shortcut to blessing. And instead of blessing, this tree brings a curse. A curse? You mean like a magic spell? No, in the Bible, the curse is when God hands people over to the consequences of seizing our own blessing on our own terms. It's a curse because instead of abundance and life, we end up with scarcity, isolation, and death. So God curses the ground, and instead of fruitfulness, there will be famine. Instead of overseeing the world, they will have to work the land until they die. Man. But God also curses that deceptive creature that fooled the humans, saying that a human will come one day to destroy it. And that human will be born into a world of scarcity where men and women and families and tribes are all locked in violent conflict. If God's blessing is now covered with a curse, how can we flourish? Even more, how can we rule with God? Well, here the biblical story takes an interesting turn. God chooses one couple. Abraham and Sarah, and God blesses them and says they will become a huge family. Be fruitful and multiply. And there's more. God says that his blessing on Abraham and his family is for this larger purpose, so that through them, God's blessing can go out to all of the nations. So wait, God's plan is to reverse the curse and restore the blessing by first blessing this one family. Right. And this family does experience God's blessing. Even when they journey through times of danger and scarcity, they grow into this huge nation, Israel. And God brings them to a mountain and invites them to be his representatives. Yes, God will bless Israel so that they can become a blessing to the nations. All they have to do is trust and live by God's wisdom. And they're told that this is a choice between life and death, between blessing and curse. Now keep reading, because the Israelites almost never trust God for his blessing. Their story is filled with tales of deception, violent grabs for power, resulting in the ultimate curse, exile from their land and slavery to foreign nations. But Israel's prophets who lived through all of this, they still trusted in God's promise to Abraham. And they anticipated a future Israelite who would come to restore God's blessing and reverse the curse for Israel and for all the nations. When we turn to the story of Jesus, we find Israel still experiencing the curse living as slaves to the Roman Empire. But Jesus, he so trusted in God's blessing, he claimed that it was arriving in a new way through himself. He wanted his followers to trust in God's abundance, to share and be generous. And he even taught his followers to bless people who curse them. Jesus would even reverse the curse by healing and restoring people's bodies. God's blessing is being unleashed. Jesus also confronted his fellow Israelites who were in power, and he accused them of getting in the way of God's plan to bless Israel and the nations through them. Those leaders arrest Jesus so they could have him killed. And instead of fighting back, Jesus believed that he was that chosen Israelite who would face the curse that Israel and all humanity deserves, and he would allow the curse to fall on him. Jesus dies the shameful death of a man under the curse. But just as God brought life and blessing out of darkness in the beginning, so here, through Jesus, God reverses death by raising Jesus. The curse is put to death so that the blessing of God's life can spread out once again. After his resurrection, Jesus blessed his followers, and he said that his presence would be with them as they learned to trust in God's blessing. 
and share with others. And while death and the curse still have a hold on our world, followers of Jesus trust that the power of God's blessing is even stronger. It means we can live with extreme generosity, even when it seems like there's not enough. And that leads us to the conclusion of the biblical story, where every nation is enjoying the gifts of God's abundance, because in God's new world that is sustained by the life-giving power of Jesus, there is no longer any curse. All right, I think it's pretty impressive that they took the whole timeline of the Bible in six minutes, and and it's uh, able you're able to follow, which which is awesome. So. Um, all right, I want to go back to this promise to Abraham. This is in Genesis 12 in your Bible. Uh, and, and if you have one, I mean, it's kind of, kind of helpful to open to just because you can see actually where we're at in the story. We, we are really, really at the beginning of this, of this story still. So Genesis 12, you're talking just a few pages into the story of Scripture. And God speaks to Abram, and he says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And then I'm skipping a few verses to verse 7, where we see that word offspring again. It says, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had, uh, who had appeared to him. Now, verses 2 and 3, you can already see, is about offspring. It's about these, these children that are being promised to Abraham. But then verse 7 names it. It names the word offspring. And I want to tell you that this is the plot of Genesis. In fact, this is the plot of the whole Bible. And when we understand the Bible and how we got it, uh, it, it really starts to come alive. So uh, number one, this happened in real time. God spoke to Abram and he gave him this promise. Number two, we talked about how Moses was the primary author of Genesis, giving it two Hebrew slaves that had just been freed, ex-slaves, from 400 years of slavery. And so you can see the sermon here. If you had been enslaved for 400 years, you don't know who you are, you don't know who your people are, you don't know what your purpose is, and here you're finding out about Abraham and this great promise of your lineage, of your bloodline, that you're to be a nation to bless all other nations. Okay, so the word offspring... In Hebrew, the top, what looks like uh, symbols up there, is Hebrew language, and the word is zerah. And when you say an R in Hebrew, you, you go down into your throat, zerah, and that is the word for offspring. It's also the word for seed. When you talk about planting trees, it's the same word. It's the word for descendants. And so in your English translation, sometimes they'll use the word seed, other times offspring, other times descendants. And I think in doing that, we miss out on how important this word is to the authors of Genesis. And so what I'm going to do, uh, brace yourself, cue, I'm going to cue you up, it's going to be really fast, you won't be able to read it on the screen, but I took screenshots of my Bible app, or my, um, I should say my software on my computer, of the English and the Hebrew, and the word offspring is in the book of Genesis 42 times. It's a lot. 42 times the author of Genesis wrote 
Zerah, 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 Zerah. So you're, you're reading this going, and you'd actually be listening to it. Uh, in in the, the, the original context, people wouldn't have been reading a Bible. They would have been listening to someone read the book of Genesis. You would have kept hearing that word over and over and over again. So I'm just going to go through this really, really fast. I know you can't read it, and that's okay. Um, what you see on the left side of the screen is the Hebrew, and everything in red is the word Zerah. And so if you look at the first one, it's from Genesis 1, and it's actually the only two times that it's used as the word seed. So this is literally in the creation narrative. Um, there's plants with seeds in them. And then you fire through, and you see that in the, in the, the piece of the story with Satan, uh, in the curse, we're talking about offspring. When, when we, we continue to go to the story of Noah, we're talking about descendants. When we go to Abram, we're talking about offspring. And we have a whole bunch of, of part of, of the book of Genesis about Abraham. And it's offspring, 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 offspring. And as we keep going down, there's a covenant made with Abram in Genesis 15 about descendants. And we have more Abraham and offspring, descendants, 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 descendants. And all of this, this context about the generations that are to come. And then we get into Isaac and uh, Abraham's son Isaac of the promise. Now we're talking about his offspring and about how he is the offspring. And he is this seed. And it just keeps going. Offspring, descendants, descendants, offspring, offspring. And now we're into the middle of Genesis. Genesis uh, 24. Genesis, um, he's talking about a blessing to Rebekah and her offspring. This whole book is about blessings of offspring, blessings of descendants. Uh, this is the last one, and we're now into the Joseph story. We're talking about Jacob and, and his offspring, his descendants, how they get to Egypt, and then on into Joseph, which is how the book of, um, the book of Genesis ends. And, and literally, you can't read it, I know, but like Genesis uh, 48, Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and uh, Israel, you, you can, again, you can imagine reading this as an ex-slave for 400 years in Egypt and going, that's us. We are Israel. We are the descendants of Israel. We are the descendants of, of Jacob. So Israel wasn't just a country name. It was actually a person's name. And they, uh, they were all the descendants of Israel, of Jacob. Now, the whole Bible is about this. Offspring, 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 offspring. If you keep going into the timeline, we don't nearly have any time to talk about this today, but we get into this Davidic covenant. There's a promise to David, and God says, you'll always have an offspring on the throne, an eternal throne with an eternal offspring. It's the same word, Zerah. Isaiah 11, you can go into, and we're in this time of prophecy. Hey, Israel, you're about to lose your land because you're evil. You're going to lose your land. You're not going to have a king, but there's a branch of Jesse that comes up, and Jesse was David's dad. So he went Jesse and then David, and so it's this messianic prophecy that this branch of Jesse, Isaiah 11, is coming and will be this eternal king, and he's coming to bring justice to the poor and to make God's kingdom reign. Uh, in Matthew 1, if you go to the first chapter of the New Testament, how many of you, uh, you know, you've, you've done your devotions and you get to the genealogy and you're like, I'm skipping that, <laughs> right? You're like, one-year Bible, you're like, yeah, I can save some time this morning because I'm not reading the begat, the begat, the begat, the begat, the begat, right? All right, now the Holy Spirit's moving. Now we got an invitation up here, right, of all these people coming to repent. <laughs> we don't want to read that. Well, it's, and, 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 and yeah, it is boring for us to read. But it's so, so crucial to Matthew's message because he's writing to Hebrews. He's writing to Jews, and he's saying Jesus is the one. He's the seed. He's the offspring. He's the bloodline. In fact, if you look at that genealogy in Matthew 1, 
Some of those names, Rahab, Boaz, Ruth, David, it's Jesus' bloodline. It's all the stories of the Old Testament. Why do you think the story of Rahab is in the Old Testament? Why do you think the story of Boaz is in the Old Testament? The story of Ruth is in the Old Testament. There are all of these, like, these, these images into the bloodline that leads to Jesus. It's this message that he is the one. He's the one that crushes the serpent. He's the everlasting Davidic king. He is Abraham's seed. He is Abraham's Zerah that we talk about in Genesis 12. He is the Messiah. So why does this matter so much? Why does it matter so much about offspring, about seed, about descendants? Number one, Israel was a people group. They were a people group that didn't have an identity, and God is giving them an identity. He's saying, this is who you are. There's these phases of inspiration. This actually happened, and then it was given to them as they were freed from slavery in Egypt. And also, fast forward to the timeline, not quite to Jesus. If you remember, they were exiled. They lost everything. So picture you lose your home. You lose the land that was promised to you. You lost it because of your own rebellion. You're all taken to Babylon. So they go from modern-day Israel to modern-day Iraq, and that's where we have Daniel in the lion's den. That's where we have this, this 70 years of exile in Babylon. And you go, great, now God really gave up on us. God really gave up on us. Guess when the Hebrew Bible was put together into a chronology? It was curated together during the years just following the exile. They got back to their land. They were not in power. They were very weak. The temple was a, a, a shamble of its former self. And they wondered, will we ever see the glory days again? And so they compiled the Old Testament as we know it at that time to rem be reminded for God to remind them that I am your God, you are my people, and you are to be a light to the world. The promise of, of Abraham, the very first one, says, and all people on earth will be blessed through you. We see in the book of Isaiah, during this warning about the, ex, the, the coming exile, I'm the Lord, I've called you in righteousness, I will take you by the hand and keep you, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Does the world still need a light? Do the nations today still need a light? Or have they got it all figured out? Has the world got to figure it figured out, or is the world crying out for a light, a light to show the world our purpose, a light to show the world our reason for living, who we are to be living for? Of course, the purpose of Israel in the Old Testament is still our purpose today, to be a light to the nations. Number two, why did it matter so much? Because this was a culture of royalty. This was a culture of monarchy. They didn't have political commercials on TV every October. They were so lucky. They didn't have to watch all of the political ads. <laughs> this is like my most depressing time of the year, I think, is the political ad season. They didn't have to do that because they had a monarchy. And there was a king, and the king's son became the next king, and the king's son became the next king. And yeah, sure, a lot of them were corrupt and crazy, but at least they didn't have political ads, right? right? But the idea of kingdom is not one that we are familiar with. It would have been everything that they were familiar with. Egypt had a king, the Canaanites had a king, everybody had a king. And a king, uh, monarchy, is all about what? A bloodline. It's all about a bloodline. Whose dad is whose dad is whose mom is whose mom is whose dad is whose mom, all the way down the bloodline. Okay, this is why it matters so much. Now, 
uh, we have here Galatians 3.16. Fast forwarding again into the new covenant, into Jesus, into the church, into our time of the story. And Paul writes to the church in Galatia and he says, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. There's that word again. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. The promise of Genesis 12 had many layers to it, but the primary and most important layer is Jesus is the one. Royalty, monarchy, authority, it's Jesus' kingdom. It's Jesus' kingdom. We are his image bearers, and we learn to trust his way, and we show the world that his way is the light of the world. Now, back to our, our, our verse in 2 Peter 3. In 2 Peter 3, uh, they're still essentially enslaved to the Roman Empire. Uh, Israel is, is, a, is a tiny little uh, group with no political power. The Roman Empire is, is, is large and in charge, and they are subservient to Rome. And they're wondering, is this all just a bunch of garbage? You know, is, is God ever going to be faithful to his promises? And they are reminded, as we read earlier, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. They're being reminded that God is faithful. They're being reminded that God is faithful. And I have to be candid with you. I am often devastated by our world. <laughs> And in an unhealthy way. I mean, I am often devastated by the oppression in our world, by the injustice in our world. I joke about the political commercials, but the political polarity and, frankly, the, I don't know the right preaching word for this, uh, just, you just go, what? Like, seriously? And, 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 and the idolatry of politics in our culture, and what I read in Scripture and sometimes what I see in the church, and then talking to, talking to uh, I talked with a group of, of teens recently that are not Christians, and we were talking about sex. And I was, frankly, just shocked. I was just shocked at what children are doing sexually. I was just shocked. And I often get devastated by our world. And it can be so hard to remember this, that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. And how helpful it is to see in scripture from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, this pattern over and over and over that God's plan is long and it is steady and it is consistent. And so what we want to do this morning and what scripture calls us to do is hold God to the promises that he made. He's slow in our sense, but he is not slow in his sense. There's the grand timeline, and we are a part of it. There will be a day, back to 2 Peter 3, there will be a day at the end of the timeline where we will arrive at the end of the timeline, Jesus' second coming, and we will look back. We will look back. There'll be a day when, when Kyle eating the ribs won't be there. It'll be in the new heaven and the new earth. There will be ribs on the new heaven and the new earth. Amen. 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 It's all right. We can celebrate that. And we will look back at this whole timeline. We will look back at all of the struggles that we've made it through and all of the oppression and all of the injustice that we saw. And we'll say, that was fast. 
We'll say things like, God did it. It was true all along. The consistency didn't stop from the beginning of the story to the end of the story. This has been going on for a long, long time. And this can help us through our doubts. This can help us in our faith to understand that this pattern in Scripture has been going on for a long, long time. This is uh, how we want to end today. I want to give you uh, these passages. Worship team, you guys can come back up. And we're going to enter into our time of, of communion. But I thought about this, this, this second Peter passage that's, that's telling Christians, hold on. God is not slow in keeping his promises. And all throughout the season we're in of the church, you see verses like this in Scripture. And see if you can relate to these. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Romans 8, 18. Yeah, we're suffering now, but there is a glory that is coming that is not worth comparing. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. 2 Corinthians 4, 17. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and witness of Christ's sufferings who also share in the glory to be revealed. Look, I, I admit I want the timeline to go faster. I want God to fix all things, both in my life and in society as a whole. And I need to be reminded that God is faithful. He is faithful. He is faithful. He is faithful. He is faithful. And Jesus is the one through all of Scripture as well as today for us. We're going to enter now into a